We like to put a lot of Bible into our Sunday morning service, whether it's scripture reading, singing scripture songs, or preaching from the Word of God. A good sermon has a lot of Bible in it, and so I think this is going to be a good sermon today because it's got a lot of Bible. Romans chapter 11 is where we find ourselves. I hope you are enjoying this study of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. These chapters are filled with doctrine about Israel. Israelology is what you could call the major focus of these three chapters, answering the question of what is the status of Israel currently and what is the future that God has in store for them. And you might ask yourself, well, I'm not an Israelite. Why should I be so concerned about Israelology? I've got a lot of other practical concerns on my heart and on my mind. And here I'd like to encourage you with a reminder that the nation of Israel have been and continue to be, through the scriptures that they have given to us, the vehicle of God's revelation. That it's through God's dealings with Israel that God has made himself known to all nations. That you know God because of what God has done through a specific people, a specific nation, a specific family on the earth. And that it's from that family that your Savior Jesus Christ was born. And so understanding Israel is a key to understanding the Bible. The Bible and Israel are tied together inseparably. And if you have a misunderstanding of one, then you're going to have some misunderstandings of the other as well. That's why it's so important for us as Gentile believers, as we are, to have these verses, these chapters written to us, to remind us about God's plan for his special people. We finished up Romans chapter 10 last week. If you take a look at the last verse there in Romans chapter 10, it ends on kind of a sour note for Israel, saying, Of Israel God spoke in the prophet Isaiah, All day long have I held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The stubbornness, the hard-heartedness, The rebelliousness of the people of Israel is a constant theme throughout the Bible that God has given us through their prophets and apostles. That sour note has led us once again into a statement about how God has not rejected his people. That's our big idea here in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and following. Israel's status is not rejected. They are still the people of God. But before we look at the outline, I'd like to remind you that Israel's problem was their ignorance. Romans chapter 10 verse 3 talked about how the people of Israel were ignorant of the righteousness of God and therefore they were undertaking to establish their own righteousness, a law righteousness, a righteousness that comes from keeping God's commandments. And that this ignorance of Israel was a culpable ignorance. It was their fault for not understanding the purpose of the law that God gave to them. God's prophets, his message is very clear. And it's only by them being a disobedient and contrary people that they could be willfully ignorant of the purpose of the law. I want you to keep that in mind. Also, this has application for today. We look at Americans today and we have a similar question as to why don't people believe? Why are there so many non-Christians coming out of 
Christian churches, having grown up in a Christian culture, why do so many people reject the message? Why don't they believe? And the answer is very similar to what we find here in Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul answers the question of why don't the Jewish people believe. It's important for us to remember. It is not because of a failure on God's part to communicate the truth. God has communicated well. God has communicated clearly. Any misunderstanding is not a problem on God's ability to communicate, but it's a problem with our ability to hear, a problem with our ability to understand, and that is a moral failing, not an intellectual problem. It might manifest itself in some intellectual unbelief, but at heart, the root here is a moral problem that Americans also are obstinate, they are contrary to God, and they have no reason to be that way. Also last week, we ended with Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, and I wanted to put it up there for us once again. Good news has come to us. That's what we're celebrating in our Christmas carols. Good news. The Savior has come. Good news has come to us just as to them. But the message they heard, the Israelites, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You have to hear the message and then you have to take that message and unite it with faith so that the power of that good news comes into your life and saves you. It transforms you. It sets you free from sin and death. That is the gospel and that is the power of God working through faith. So important. So, with that in mind, we're able to look at our outline for today, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. You see we've got it broken down into three parts. We're going to be looking at the remnant theology in verses 1 through 6, a very important part of Israelology, the study of Israel, the doctrine of Israel, is understanding the remnant. And Paul has clear teaching on that, quoting from the Old Testament prophets there in verses 1 through 6. That remnant are the elect part of the nation of Israel, that Israel as a nation has been chosen, and yet there is a remnant that is within the chosen nation that has been chosen for salvation, for personal salvation, for knowing God and being set free from sin. That's the remnant theology. Then we'll be looking at verses 7 through 10 with the hardening of the rest of Israel. The rest of Israel is still part of God's chosen nation, but they're not a part of the saved remnant. And God has hardened the hearts of most Israelites to this very day. And then verses 11 and 12, we'll take a look at Israel's future salvation. When it's no longer just a small remnant of Israelites who are believers in God and walking with God, but it will be all of the people of Israel, every person who is on the earth at a future time and a part of the nation of Israel will experience personal faith in Jesus Christ the Messiah and be born again. That's the promise of their future salvation there in verses 11 and 12. So with our outline, with the verses in front of us, let's go ahead and read the verses. Follow along in your Bible. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 in Romans chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, 
They have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. Studying God's place, His plan for Israel. Israel's status, they are not rejected. Let's take a look at the remnant theology here in verses 1 through 6. The question is asked, has God rejected his people? And that's a natural question to ask when you are coming out of Romans chapter 10, where Israel is a disobedient and contrary people, and that they are culpable in their ignorance of God's righteousness that Paul started the chapter off talking about. At the end, he shows how guilty they are because God has been so clear in his revelation of his gospel and his plan to save the nations. So, if that's the case, if God had done everything for the nation of Israel, if he had given them the prophets, he'd given them the writings, he'd sent John the Baptist, he sent Jesus Christ, and now, after all of their warnings, after all of God's patience, century after century, generation after generation, maybe now they finally lost it completely. They crucified Jesus Christ. They rejected his apostles. Maybe that is it. God is done with the people of Israel. God denies that in the strongest possible terms. God says that thought is inconceivable, that God could ever give up on his people. There's no stronger way that God could have rejected this false conclusion that God has rejected his people Israel. And Paul's going to give us a number of reasons why he has not rejected his people. Now just look at the question that starts off there. Has God rejected his people? That phrase, has God rejected his people, comes almost word for word from the Old Testament where God explicitly states that he will never do this. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. I put it on the screen for you. You can jot it down if you're taking notes, which you should be. 1 Samuel 12:22. See, I give you all this scripture and you can't keep it all in your head. You've got to write it down. For the Lord will not forsake his people. The same word there, the Greek word I put it up from the Septuagint translation of 1 Samuel. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And Paul takes that phrase word for word and puts it right in here, asking, will the Lord forsake his people? Will the Lord reject his people? And we can go back and find out that's not going to happen. 
The Lord said, He will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. And do you know who's speaking here in 1 Samuel chapter 12? Well, it's Samuel. Wouldn't be a surprise, right? Since the book's named after him. And Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, is rebuking the people of Israel for rejecting God as their king and asking for a human king. And he says they've committed a great sin against God by asking for a king. And so the people, they're, they're really upset about this. They're worried that they've committed a great sin and that God might reject them because they've rejected him. And Samuel says, no way. God is never going to reject his people, no matter how many times they reject him, no matter in what way they reject him, no matter how evil their rejection is of him, God will not forsake his people. Can we be clear on that? I think so. Psalm 94, verse 14 also. The same, same phrase. The Lord will not forsake his people. Same Greek word there in the Septuagint that we have here in Romans chapter 11. He will not abandon his heritage. And if those aren't clear enough, I also like Jeremiah 31 verse 37, one of the verses I keep in mind when I'm thinking about God's choice of Israel and whether or not they could ever fall out of the position of favor. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. The immeasurable universe, the sky above us, the depths of the earth that no man has penetrated to, these things are unsearchable. And so God's love for Israel is also unsearchable. And it will never, ever end. Now, you might say, well, that's good and fine for Israel, but what does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. Because we're talking about God's love. We're talking about God's choice. And the way that he loves you is the way that he loves Israel. And the way that he loves Israel is the way that he loves you. And so you have to wonder, you know, have I gone too far? Have I sinned against the Lord one too many times? You know, he talked about 70 times 7, and I've been adding up, and I think I'm beyond that now. I'm past the 490. And God says, never, never, never. I will never let go of those whom I have chosen for myself. And so this has to do with the very nature of God himself, the nature of God's love, the nature of God's grace and mercy. It cannot be stopped. He is unrelenting, no matter how evil people are against him. Those whom he has chosen, he will never let go. Remember what Paul wrote back in the beginning of this letter, Romans chapter 3, when he asked the same question. Well, what if some of the Israelites, the Jews, were unfaithful? And he's being very gracious by saying some, when really it was most of them, and there was just a small remnant that were being faithful to God. But what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. I don't think God could be any more clear on this point. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, he states in the strongest terms, categorically, I never let go of my elect. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God's faithfulness cannot be countermanded by our unfaithfulness. God's faithfulness cannot be countermanded by your unfaithfulness. There's nothing you can do to make God stop loving you. 
He has loved you with an everlasting love. Now, in exploring the remnant theology, Paul gives himself as an example here in the second half of verse 1. He says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So he is a representative of the remnant that he's going to be talking about as we continue through this opening paragraph in verses 1 through 6. Secondly, we see in verse 2 that God says he's never going to give up on Israel because God has foreknown Israel. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Foreknowledge here reminds us of what Paul was writing back in Romans chapter 8. Turn back a page or two. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Now, can't read Romans 8, 29 without reading verse 28 to go with it. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And you say, well, Israel doesn't love God, so maybe things aren't working out for their good. Israel as a nation does not love God, but God loves Israel as a nation. But for those individuals who love God, yes, everything in their life is working out for good. And there are lost Israelites who are on their way to hell. Don't be confused about that. If you're a Jewish person, don't take confidence in your Jewishness that you're not going to be punished for your sin. Just because you're a part of God's elect nation doesn't mean you are one who loves God and have you been personally elect. But notice the connection here between the personal election and the national election that I do want to draw out in verse 29. He says, For those whom he, that is God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's an unbreakable chain here between God's foreknowledge and future glory. And that is true for the nation of Israel. It's not true for every individual within the nation of Israel, but it is true for the nation. God has chosen a nation. He has foreknown them. And that foreknowledge is going to lead to their justification. It's going to lead to their glorification. They will be conformed to the image of God there is a future generation of Israelites, as I said, who are going to turn to the Lord and be saved. God's plan for Israel is going to be fulfilled. But for all of the individual Jews in the world, I say repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or you will miss out on that future glory. It's only those who hear the message and unite it with faith who are going to be a part of this glorification that is the unbreakable chain of God's foreknowledge. So keep the national election and the individual election distinct so that you can make sense of these passages. Now, not only has God foreknown Israel, but the third thing that is important here is that God has a remnant. A and C tie together on the outline. Paul is a representative of the remnant that God has. And so that's where we spend most of our time here. Most of the evidence is on God's love for Israel in preserving a remnant of faithful Jews in the nation. Here, Paul draws upon the story of Elijah. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? And I love how scripture introduces Old Testament passages in this way. Don't you know? 
Jesus did this on a number of occasions. He expected people to be familiar and to understand what the Word of God says. And here Paul is writing to a mostly Gentile church, as we would imagine, here in in Rome, and he expects them to know the Scripture. He expects them to have read and understand and incorporated the truth of Scripture into their thinking. And Jesus expected this of the Jews, and it's not wrong for God to expect this of people in the world. You know, if you're God, and you give people prophets, and you write down that revelation in a book, and you deliver that to the world of man, you would expect that they would pay some attention to that. You would expect that they would listen to that. And if they haven't, well, then they are blameworthy for not listening and paying attention to that. And so God says, don't you know? Haven't you read what the Scripture says of Elijah? The story of Elijah is a great story, as our Awana clubbers were reminded this last week. Some tremendous truths there in the life of Elijah in 1 Kings. And Elijah's complaint against Israel that's recorded here in Romans 11 comes from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 10 through 14. If we had plenty of time, which we never do, we'd go back and take a look at it, but I'm going to trust that you know it. Don't you know what the scripture says about Elijah? And if you don't know it, write it down, 1 Kings chapter 19, go back and learn what the scripture says. Now, here... Elijah thinks he's the only one. He says, I alone am left, and they're seeking to kill me. So among God's holy people, there's only one faithful man left, and his life is about ready to pass away, and God says, no, that's not quite the case. God's reply to Elijah, he has a a longer reply, but the only thing that Paul is focusing on here is what God said about how he has kept for himself, notice that, God kept for himself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Baal was the chief idol of the nations around Israel and was their chief temptation to idolatry in the days of Elijah. And so as the king and his queen were promoting Baal worship, most of the Israelites just went right along with the culture. They went right along with the flow. But there were 7,000 stubborn Israelites you know, stubbornness can be a good thing too, who said, no, I'm not going to worship Baal. We are the people of Israel. God, Jehovah, is the one who has delivered us from slavery and given us his law. We're going to stay faithful to the Lord. And when all the culture is going one way, and God has to keep for himself people who will be faithful to him. This is God's work. The doctrines of grace are not just found in the New Testament and they're not just found in the sections of the Bible that have to do with detailed doctrinal analysis, but you find it everywhere. Here, God is just speaking to Elijah and he says, I have kept for myself. It's not, well, there's 7,000 people who have kept themselves for me. It's I have kept for myself 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so, This is the illustration that Paul uses to show that the situation has not changed. Israel was unfaithful then, and Israel's unfaithful now. Israel was unbelieving then, Israel is unbelieving now. There was a remnant within Israel then, and there's a remnant within Israel now. So don't think that we're in some new situation, that somehow things are different 
well, that was before Jesus Christ came, and now they've actually rejected Christ himself, and, and that's much worse, and so maybe God is done with his people because they rejected their Messiah. Now, they've been rejecting God since the beginning. This latest rejection, it might be the most blatant, it might be the worst, but it's still the same behavior. It's still rejecting God. And God is still faithful to them, and God still has a remnant to show that his plan for them hasn't changed. God didn't wipe out the nation of Israel during the days of Moses. God didn't wipe out the nation of Israel during the days of Elijah. God didn't wipe out the nation of Israel during the days of Paul. And God is not going to wipe out the nation of Israel in our day either. They are going to continue. They are going to have a remnant. And God is going to save them after the Great Tribulation. That's the plan. God's always had the plan. He's going to stick to the plan. Now, the remnant idea is a big idea in the Bible. It's not just explored here in Romans 9 through 11. It is throughout these chapters. You can remember what Paul wrote about the remnant back in Romans chapter 9, verses 27 to 29. He quotes from Isaiah, who is one of the major prophets who writes on the subject of the remnant. Isaiah talks about the remnant in chapter 10 of his book, chapter 11, chapter 28, chapter 37, chapter 46, and repeated verses. The other major prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve, they all talk about this remnant theology, and I could flash up a whole screen full of verses on the remnant. But here Paul summarizes it for us, that though the nation of Israel as a whole is unfaithful, God shows his love for the nation by always having within the nation a small number, in comparison to the large whole, of believers. That hasn't changed. Now notice that this remnant in verse 5 is chosen by grace. God wants to insert this thought once again. Paul wants to remind us of one of the major doctrines of the letter, the doctrine of grace, that it's God's foreknowledge, it's God's choice that has made the difference between the remnant and the rest, between the minority of believers and the majority of unbelievers. Why are some believers? Well, it's because of God's gracious choice. That's the reason. I didn't write it. I'm just the messenger. And verse 6 says, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so Paul, although it's not really related to his argument, he has to put it back in here again in verse 6, making this strong distinction between grace and works. This reminds me of what God spoke to the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy. So you see here our fourth reason. Paul is an Israelite. That shows that God has not rejected Israel. God has foreknown Israel, and everyone whom God foreknows eventually gets saved, and the nation that God has chosen is eventually going to get saved as a nation. And then thirdly, the remnant theology. And fourth, because salvation is by grace. Well, Israel's been very unfaithful to God. Well, that's because well, their salvation is by grace. Israel's not going to be saved by their faithfulness to God. They're going to be saved by God's grace. Salvation is not on the basis of works. And this reminds me, as I said, of what God said to Israel all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 9 at the beginning of their history, entering into the land. And God reminded them, it's not because of your righteousness 
or the uprightness of your heart that you are going in to possess their land. And so remember, this is true of God's relationship to us as well. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you are going to enter the kingdom. You might look back and say, well, look, I've been a Christian now for all these years. I've, I've taught Sunday school. I've gone on mission trips. I've witnessed door-to-door evangelism. I, I've done Bible studies, and, and I've, I've raised my kids in, in a Christian household, and I've been faithful to my wife, and, and that's why I'm, I'm going into the kingdom of God. <clears throat> You're not going in to possess the land, so to speak, as the metaphor holds, because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. No matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how many good works faith has worked in your life, the reason you are going to inherit the earth is because of God's grace. It's God's mercy. And it has nothing to do with your works. Your works could no more cause you to enter into the kingdom than they can keep you out of hell. And the only thing that's going to keep you out of hell for all the sins that you have multiplied against God is the blood of Jesus Christ. God is not done with Israel because salvation is not based on works. It's based on God's gracious choice. And God has chosen Israel. So let's look at verses 7 through 10 in a little more detail. He asks another question. What then? And that's just a question to ask, what's the summary? What what does all this mean? So he's trying to pull the threads together here in talking about the Israel within Israel. He says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. And what is it that Israel was seeking? Well, now is a good time for us to go back to Romans chapter 9. Let's, let's look at Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. What shall we say then? Yeah, see, very similar. The, the what then and the what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, That is a righteousness that is by faith. Verse 31 is key here. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. So what was Israel pursuing? They were pursuing righteousness. They were pursuing a righteousness based on keeping God's commandments, the law. And they did not succeed at reaching that law because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So come back again. Chapter 11, verse 7. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. They did not attain a law-based righteousness. They did not obtain righteousness at all. But, in fact, the elect obtained righteousness, not based upon their works, not based upon the law, but based upon faith. This faith righteousness versus law righteousness was at the heart of Romans 9, 30-33, and Paul reiterates it here for us so that we can understand God's hardening of Israel. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. All right, so now we're getting back into the Scripture again. He talked about Elijah. Now, here in chapter 11, verse 8, the Scripture that we're looking at is Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10, linked together with Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4. So he takes part of Isaiah 29, 10, part of Deuteronomy 29, 4, and he puts these together to talk about how God gave them a spirit of stupor, 
eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. So he comes back to the judicial hardening of God. You've got the gracious election and you've got the judicial hardening. And God is treating everyone here fairly because we are all sinners. And so if God wants to give grace and mercy to some sinners, he has the freedom to do that. If God wants to give justice to some sinners, he is free to do that. He is obligated to give justice, but his freedom and his mercy flows out of his own gracious character, his own heart. He doesn't owe anybody grace and mercy, but he gives it. And so that's the difference. Those who are elect by God's gracious choice and those who are hardened by God judicially. I like to use the term judicial hardening because it shows you that that God is not dealing with innocent people when he hardens their heart. He's dealing with people who are hardening their own hearts. He's dealing with people who are obstinate and rejecting the clear message of God and his offer of salvation and grace. He's dealing with people who hate him unjustly and who are pursuing their sin in spite of all that God has done to try to turn them around and get them to go the other way. So when God hardens their heart, he's not treating them unfairly. He's not giving them what they don't want. He's allowing them to have exactly what they've chosen. That's a judicial hardening of the heart. The elect obtained righteousness. The rest were hardened. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And Paul was thinking, that's talking about my day. And I'm thinking, that's talking about today. Here at the end of 2021, down to this very day, God has given the Jewish people a spirit of stupor. They're spiritually insensitive. They don't see with their eyes. They don't hear with their ears. They continue on with their traditions passed down to them in rabbinic Judaism that profit them nothing. And they will die in their sins unless they believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. And David says... Paul likes to pull from the Pentateuch and from other parts of Scripture to kind of give a a full-orbed scriptural response. That's why he often gives multiple Scriptures. One will be from Moses, and then one will be from the writings, and one will be from the prophets. And he just pulls it all together to show that all of Scripture has a united voice on the issue. So he pulls fear from David, Psalm 69, which was our Scripture reading. That's in verse 9 and 10. He's quoting from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. And Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23 are a part of a psalm that was quoted a lot in relationship to Jesus Christ. This is a messianic psalm because it takes the experiences of David, God's anointed king, and compares them to the experiences of Jesus, the son of David, whom God has anointed to be king of the nations. So much of what is written about David in the Psalms has application to Jesus Christ. This is what we call a typological prophecy. A type is when you've got a pattern that then gives you insight into something that follows in that pattern. And so a lot of prophecy isn't just God predicting what's going to happen in the future, but a lot of prophecy is God setting up a pattern in Israel's history that is then repeated in future events so that people can see these similarities. And that's the way it is with David, the book of David, the book of Psalms. 
and Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. And the New Testament authors, they, they understood this. They picked up on this, that God was setting up a pattern of events. And so there's a lot of the verses in Psalm 69 that are applied to Jesus Christ. Verse 4 is quoted in John 15:25. Verse 9 of Psalm 69 is in John 2:17. Verse 21 is in Matthew chapter 27, verse 48. In fact, the New Testament quotes or alludes to Psalm 69 ten times. And there's other multiplicity of references that I have here on my notes. So David's enemies were who? Well, you think, well, the, there was the nations around him that he fought battles with, like Goliath and the Philistines and all that. But, but no, most of the Psalms... David's enemies in the Psalms are not those nations out there. It's the Jewish people. Saul being one of his primary enemies who was seeking his life and caused David to actually have to flee to the nations. But you've got Absalom, David's son, rising up, trying to overthrow him and, and take the kingdom away from him. And you've got a number of other enemies within the nation of Israel who are attacking David throughout his life and he writes about it in the Psalms. And so this is what is the parallel with his greater son, Jesus Christ. It was his own people who hated him without a cause, who rejected him and handed him over to be crucified. And so David's curse upon his fellow Israelites who were opposing the Messiah whom God had anointed to be king over Israel is now here applied to the Israelites in Jesus' day who were enemies of the gospel of Christ, even in Paul's time. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, once again, that's kind of a, a negative note to end on of the hardening of Israel. So I thought it would be good for us to also include verses 11 and 12 this morning so we end on the positive note of Israel's future salvation because Paul's not done. Yes, you've got the remnant who are saved in contrast to the majority of the Israelites who are hardened in their sin. But let's take a look at our third point, verses 11 and 12. Paul asks once again, did they stumble in order that they might fall? This is another way of asking the question that he started the chapter off with. Has God rejected his people? But now he's looking at it from the human side. Has Israel stumbled so badly that they have fallen out of the place of blessing? That they've fallen from God's grace? They've fallen out of God's favor and they are no longer God's chosen nation? And what's the answer? By no means. God could not reject that false conclusion with more vehemence or with more constancy or with more emphasis than what he does throughout these chapters. God is not done with Israel. By no means. And there's a great verse here I'd like to include also, much like the one from Jeremiah earlier. This one from Isaiah. And I, I just think this is so powerfully stated. Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she would have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God speaks to the nation of Israel, the nation that crucified Jesus, who called out for his blood, who drove the saints out of Jerusalem and said, we don't want this message preached here. God says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. 
I'm thinking about you constantly. I can't forget you. The heavens and the earth might pass away, but God's love for Israel will never pass away. He is constant. He is faithful. Now, verses 11 and 12, as we said. Let's look at those one more time before we come to our application. Paul says, by no means. Rather, notice this, God has a plan. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So actually, our salvation isn't us replacing Israel in any, any sense. But instead, our salvation is actually a part of God's plan to save Israel. I don't want to put you down too much, but maybe we need a little humbling. It's kind of like, I just came up with this on the fly, so forgive me. It's kind of like you've got, you know, your girl. And, and she is not paying attention to you. And so you go and, and you show a little bit of attention to another girl. And then she starts to say, hey, that's my guy. I'm, I'm going to pay attention to him. And so we're kind of like that other girl. And God's paying a little bit of attention to us. And that's turning Israel's head. And she's saying, hey, wait a second. That's my God. That's my Savior. Those are my blessings. That's what God is doing. He's giving us what belongs to Israel to make her jealous. That puts us in a humble place. Now, that shows us that, you know, we're not supposed to get too uppity against Israel, but we're supposed to recognize that, that she is God's chosen nation, not the United States of America or any other nation that's on the face of the earth. We have been shown grace to make Israel jealous. Now, of course, you know, that's not the only purpose in God showing us grace. This has been a part of his plan for universal salvation from the very beginning. And God loves us with an everlasting love. I'm not making light of any of that. But I'm just trying to exalt Israel here. Now, if their trespass, notice God's plan. Their trespass. What is their trespass? Their trespass is their unbelief, their rejection of Christ. If their trespass means riches for us, the world, I'm going to the Gentiles. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? When we've got a full inclusion of Israelites, when they are no longer hardened, but the remnant is now the whole, and God has redeemed the nation from their sins, just in their darkest hour when it looks like they're about to be wiped off the face of the earth by the Antichrist and his forces and all the nations of the earth that are gathered around Jerusalem to put a final end to this people by the satanic influence of the ruler of this world, just then, Jesus Christ comes down and puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and destroys Israel's enemies and the people of Israel turn to Jesus Christ and put their faith and trust in him forevermore. That is God's plan. That's how it's going to unfold. And you know what happens then when Jesus Christ comes down? That's when we inherit the earth. That's when we are resurrected. That's when life from the dead happens. And that's exactly where Paul's going in the paragraph here that we're going to continue into next week. God has a plan. Israel is at the center of that plan. Let's not forget it. So, the conclusion, the applications here. There's three that I want us to, to pull out of this. If you're talking with your family during the week, as, you know, what is the big idea? What can we remember from Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 12? Number one, God brings good out of evil. This is great. Israel is evil in their sin against God. And what does God do? 
He brings the gospel to the whole world. God brings good out of evil. There was nothing more evil than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and God brought nothing more good, nothing that could ever be more good, out of that action of evil. Number two, we have zero excuses for not understanding God's plan for Israel. Any theologian who doesn't understand what I have been talking today about Israel needs to find a new job. God could not be more clear on this. We have no excuse for not understanding God's plan for Israel. Number three, God saves based upon election. I didn't write it. It's not my world. It's not my plan. God tells us the difference between those who are saved and those who are not saved, it's God's gracious choice. It's hard to understand, but that's the truth. And even when we don't understand it, we accept it and believe it. Would you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Father God, at the end of this message that we have heard from you, from what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Gentile believers at the church in Rome, we recognize how relevant this message is today. How important it is for us to understand your character revealed through your dealings with Israel in time and space and history. Lord God, you have disciplined Israel severely. They have suffered, perhaps like no other nation has suffered, as an example, as an illustration of, of your wrath against the trespass of unbelief. And yet, God, you are not done with them. We thank you that your love is an unrelenting love, an unstoppable love, an unquenchable love, a love that is stretching from eternity to eternity. And that if you have set your name upon the nation of Israel, then Israel will be saved. And if you've set your name upon me, then I will be saved. And there's no one anywhere at any time that can do anything to change that. And even I myself cannot do anything to change your love for me. I thank you for the comfort of who you are in the power of your grace and mercy. Amen.